if you're not going there for yourself, the chances of you making long-term sobriety are very slim. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining me. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for 15 months and one week. At the time of this recording, it's December 15th. This recording is slated to come out on December 28th. So, I hope everybody had a fantastic Christmas. The holidays are in mid-swing. There's another big day coming up in three or four days called New Year's. How are you going to ring this New Year in? I know how I plan to ring this New Year in, even though it is at the time of this recording 16 days away. I plan to ring it in sober. In fact, I'd like to repeat how I rang in 2015. I was sober. And there's a lot of apprehension of, man, is this New Year's going to be that great if I'm going to ring it in sober? I'll tell you what right now, Recovery Elevator, last New Year's, when I was sober, it was one of the best New Year's I've ever had. I found myself on a dance floor like at 2.30 a.m. just sweating, just dancing, and I remembered everything. Best part about it, the very first day, well, I was dancing in 2015, but when I first woke up in 2015, I didn't feel like shit. There was no shame. There was no guilt. I was ready to get my feet forward in the right direction in 2015. I'm taking this one day at a time, but that is exactly how I want to start 2016. I'm actually going to be at the same New Year's party, but before that, I'm going to be in charge of the music at the Fellowship Hall in Bozeman, Montana, and there's going to be a New Year's party for a bunch of us alcoholics, and I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, that was a little side note about the holidays. On this episode, Recovery Elevator episode 45, I've got Michael. He's from the UK. He's been sober for over 10 years, and he's also a life coach. This guy, he gets it, and he's helping other people. A couple nights ago, I received a text message from my mom. It said, Paul, there's lasagna in the fridge. Just kidding. I don't live at home anymore, but I used to get a ton of text messages like that. Thank you, mom. I love you so much. The text message said, you need to watch the 60-minute segment that they just had on drugs, alcohol, addiction, all the above. Said, thanks, mom. I really appreciate that. Side note, my mom is my number one supporter. She's rooting for me. Fortunately, my mom is a normal drinker. She's not an alcoholic, but she also fully understands that addiction is freaking complicated. So after seeing this segment from 60 Minutes about alcohol and drug addiction, I decided this has got to be a podcast episode. It's about this guy named Michael Botticelli, and he's got a nickname that he doesn't really like called the Drug Czar. And here's where I think we're moving in the right direction, or at least we've got the right person for the job. Michael Botticelli has been alcohol-free for over 27 years. In 1998, he got in a car wreck and woke up handcuffed to a gurney. He is an alcoholic. So for an issue as complex as alcoholism, drugs, and addiction, I think it's a very good thing that somebody in this position has had first-hand experience. And what is this position? Michael oversees a budget of over $26 billion across 16 government agencies and he controls how this money is spent. Now he says that over half of this money goes to drug enforcement. However, he also says after 40 years and nearly a trillion dollars, this nation has little to show on the war on drugs and addiction. And his core argument behind that is you can't incarcerate addiction out of people because addiction, this just in, is a disease. 
The next statement is not factually based, but I'm guessing the people for the last 40 years who instilled and created these policies did not have firsthand experience with addiction. They probably weren't alcoholics or drug addicts. I imagine positions high up in the government had restrictions that a DUI or an incarceration due to your addiction to drugs and alcohol would make you not eligible for these jobs. Again, that's speculation, not 100% sure on that. His main purpose is to eradicate the stigma surrounding alcoholism and addiction. His paramount point is addicts and alcoholics, we should be patients and not prisoners. Because in 1998, when Michael was facing the judge, the judge told him, Michael, you've got two choices here. You can either choose recovery, rehab, or you can continue down this criminal path. It's completely up to you. And a lot of us, due to a lack of information, don't recognize that it's a disease, we continue on the path that seems easiest. And the whole path of control is in, yeah, we got this. It'll be different next time. As the position as the government's top drug official, Michael has already done some pretty cool stuff. Number one, he's created a high school in Massachusetts strictly for kids in recovery. That is awesome. Another thing he's done in Massachusetts, Botticelli has made treating alcohol addiction and addiction in general routine health care. Now, side note from that, which is not a political statement, it's just a fact. The Affordable Care Act requires most insurance companies to treat addiction like any other disease, which it is. A major source of this stigma is derived from the fact that insurance companies refuse, they deny to treat alcoholism, drug addiction, stating that it is a choice and not a disease. Thank you, 1980s government policies. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican, if you're an alcoholic or you're an addict, you probably won't want to vote to repeal that thing. Another cool thing that Michael has done in Massachusetts he tried an experiment in 2010 with the Quincy Police Department, and that was to arm officers with Naxalone, a nasal spray to bring people back from an overdose. He also made some changes to the Good Samaritan Law, which now 32 states have also adopted those same similar changes, saying that if you call the police department, report an overdose, you are not at risk for getting in trouble if you are found with drugs on you when the police arrive. At this moment, this experiment has been so successful that more than 800 police departments have armed their officers with naloxone. And I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Michael Botticelli, or Botticelli, I have no idea how those Italians say their last name, is also shedding light on this epidemic. And I'm not using the word epidemic lightly. There is an epidemic across America right now with drug and alcohol overdoses. Every day, more than 120 Americans die of drug doses just in a single frickin' day. We hear the word epidemic on the media when there are just a couple of deaths from a recent Ebola scare. But this is an epidemic claiming nearly 50,000 people each year, and nobody knows about it. Botticelli also sheds light on the over 500,000 people that are killed every year by legal drugs. Legal drugs, let me say again, that would be alcohol and nicotine, guys. He makes a point which I absolutely love. Addiction is one of the only diseases where we let patients get to an acute point in their disease. What I mean by that is we don't intervene with a cancer patient when they hit their bottom. It is not prudent to let somebody who has cancer ride their elevator all the way down until saying, all right, this guy's had enough. Let's have a chat. 
Another interesting that Michael says is that he sees a model in the attitude towards the stigma with the gay rights movement. Yeah, Michael is an alcoholic and he's also gay. He's gay. Who flippin' cares? It's 2015. He said that he came out of the closet first and that was easier for him to do than coming out as an alcoholic. Man, how effed up is that? So, he does recognize that there is a lot of work to do in eradicating the stigma. To resume, in my opinion, this is an instant where the government has the right person in the right position for the right job. It's a way to go, Michael. I've already sent you an email requesting an interview. I'd love to have you on the show. And before we get to my favorite part of this whole podcast, hearing from you guys, your stories, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Michael, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well, my friend. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for joining us from all the way across the world, from London or the United Kingdom. We'll get more on that in a second. But first off, Michael, how long have you been sober? I'm just coming up to, I'm a little, I'm just under over a month away from 10 years of uh, sobriety, clean sobriety. Wow. So I am one-tenth the level of coolness you are, Michael. So I am, <laughs> I'm intimidated right now to have you on this podcast, but I'm loving it. <laughs> and Michael, give listeners a little bit of background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old you are, do you have a family, are you married, and what do you like to do for fun? Okay, so as you said, I'm from the United Kingdom uh, in England, just outside of London. I travel into London a lot. I'm a breakthrough coach. I work with creative, fun, exciting people and help them to achieve more success and fulfillment in their lives. And that's really come from being a personal coach and finding what I'm passionate about and doing what I'm passionate about and love come through recovery, really, because my life was very different, as you'll find out, to what it is now as regards to helping people. Yeah, so that, that's what I do for a living. You know, I've got a family. I met my wife in recovery. I'm coming up to 10 years sober. She's coming up to eight years sobriety. I always like to remind her that she's a couple of years behind me uh, to put myself on the moral high, high ground. And, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and for fun, you know, I love hanging out with my friends. Since being in recovery, I've connected a lot deeper with different people and made new friends, Paul. Uh, not all in recovery. Some of the people in early days that I made in recovery, I don't speak to so much now, but just through my coaching and, and stuff like that, I've just met some extraordinary people that have become friends and uh, I love hanging around, hanging out with them. I love spending time with my family. You know, I enjoy playing football. I, th- I think over, in, over, over the other side of the pond there, you call it soccer, don't you? Um, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, uh, I love working out and uh, I just enjoy good foods and just generally having fun. You know, my, my life's really designed around having fun, Paul, because I spent most of my life not having fun. Michael, I love it all. But before we continue, I think I made a mistake. I think on one of my email emails sent to you my signature. I, I probably spelt my name wrong and said P-O-O-L instead of P-A-U-L. So it's Paul. It's not pool. Oh, I said pool. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm just <laughs> making fun of your accent there. It's pool. I love it. I love it. 
I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I heard you. I was like, was he talking to me there? Did he just say my name? Or uh, no, I love it. It sounds much more sophisticated when you call my name out. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably more to do with my accent, Paul. <laughs> oh, I love it. There we go. There we go. Uh, now, Michael, let's talk about the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. Walk me up in your story up to the point when you decided to hit that button 10 years ago and get off that damn elevator. Let's hear your story. I'm, I'm excited to hear it. Okay, so I guess people always ask me this question, like, why did you drink? Was it a bad upbringing? There's a, there's a lot of, uh, what I believe, are myths that run about in recovery and in really general social, in society, really. The human brain really likes to sort of try and find some kind of answers and solutions to everything, you know. And my personal own story really was, I just felt so disconnected from everyone from a young age. I just felt so disconnected. I didn't feel loved, even though I wasn't brought up in uh, not a loving family. I just just felt separate. I always said if there was a one-way ticket to the moon, I would have bought it and uh, I would have stayed there by myself, you know, yeah. because I just I just felt so just just so disconnected from everyone else. And I remember that drink when I took that drink and it enabled me to be the person that I couldn't be around other men and other other women and things like that. And it started at a young age. That was from as young as I can remember that. Always looking and comparing myself to other people and always thinking, well, you know, why can't I be like that person? Why can't I do this person? And I just felt this real, like, you hear that AA cliche, that, that hole in the soul, right? The hole in the soul. Yep, so I, I just felt, it. yeah, I just felt so disconnected from people. And then I started drinking and it, and it enabled me to, to connect with people on a, on a level that I couldn't connect when I was sober. And I started hanging around. Well, people say to me, did you get in with the wrong crowd? And I said, it's a hard one now. I don't know if, if I was the wrong crowd, you know, if people got in with me. But <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know. It's a hard one to answer, right? But the, the, the thing is, is, if you're drinking and drinking like I was and drinking like maybe you was, Paul. I've been really self-conscious when I'm saying your name now. No, go uh, for it. That we, we just find out, we just find people that drink like us, or they may not even be alcoholic, you know, but they still drink a lot. You know, um, one of my best friends used to drink a lot of Coca Cola when he went to the pub. So I didn't really invite him out a lot to the pub because <laughs> he didn't drink like me. So from a young age, I started drinking. I was hanging around on a local market stalls, drinking up to Skullduggery, and just generally being a, a scallywag as you do. But my story was, is I would always do more than anyone else. So I would always drink that bit more than anyone else. And I always had to be the one that was carried home. I always smoked a little bit more weed than anyone else. I remember a time when we used to do a thing. I spoke on O's show and I spoke about this, about doing yogurt. Do you know, have you ever heard of them before? Is that, no, I have not. Does that have to do something with like wagging a couple scallies or what, what does that mean? Well, what it no is, 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 is you get a yogurt, yeah, you get a yogurt and you get some cooking oil uh -huh. and you put some cooking oil on a spoon and you burn some, some weed, and, well, not weed, but like puff in there, some, uh, yeah, you burn some puff and that in there, some skunk or something like that and you burn it and then put it in the yogurt and eat it because I didn't, I wasn't really a fan of smoking. Hmm. So I used to do that to get a little bit high as well, but I remember a time that all my, all my friends were doing this and, um. I had to go that little bit further. Anyway, about 45 minutes later when, when the high hit me, I was in serious, serious trouble. And <laughs> my friends were all sitting down on the floor and I'm pacing up and down for 45 minutes going to them. I just, I just can't, I, I just can't, 
I can't walk. I can't walk. I can't do nothing. I need you to take me home. And I was really paranoid and things. And uh, they were laughing. They were going, Mike, you've, you've been walking up and down for 45 minutes. But I was walking up and down going, I can't walk. So I always took it that, hmm. that little step further, that little step further. And just going back to that distinction, like I said, about the way I felt in myself. Now, that's how I felt in myself. And, and the way I dealt with that was through, through alcohol. I drunk. Yeah. And then I, I later become dependent on that, on alcohol. Now, I know a lot of people that don't become alcoholics and they feel that way in their life. Okay. I just want to make that distinction because a lot of people are always searching for, like, oh, it, so that's why I'm an alcoholic. Is this an alcoholic? You know, and some other, other people out there, they have this stuff going on inside themselves, but they don't sedate themselves with alcohol and cocaine and drink, you know. So I just wanted to make that distinction. It's not just alcoholics that's, that suffer with that. And, it, you know, I've got friends and family that, that still suffer like that, but they just didn't sedate themselves with drink. So for a young age, you know, I was drinking and the consequences were getting worse and worse. You know, I went bankrupt uh, when I was young. I got like uh, a lot of money. I got a loan out and a credit card out. And it was supposed to be for a car. And I ended up spending it all on alcohol. And I found that that magical powder that we were speaking about just a little while ago called cocaine. Yeah. That played an important part in my life. And just generally, the consequences were getting worse and worse. Now, I think I look back on it now. By the age of 18, I was quite in trouble with alcohol. But at that age, I wasn't prepared to look at it. You know, I wasn't prepared to really change anything. You know, I remember the first time I was drunk, I spent most of my time, I climbed up a tree and I was crying and I wet myself. And <laughs> Remember that? I, do, I still remember that well. You know, there was two girls that I liked and they weren't really interested. So I climbed up the tree, I wet myself and I was crying. And my drinking just got a little bit more sophisticated than yeah. that. You know, I, yeah, I'd, I'd spend times in my bedroom by myself crying and wet myself as I got <laughs> in front of yeah. people. But uh -huh. I'd say like my, my mental state and the belief systems I held within myself and who I thought I was got worse the more I drunk that got worse and it got to a point where I, I met a girl I met a girl and she was a nice girl and we were living together and these are some of the things that like where drink took me to you know because we all got our own drunkologues and all the stuff that we got up to you know I could tell you plenty of crazy shit that I got up to in my life but we've all got our own drunkologues and, and, and some of the some of the nasty things that happened for me is where it took me was uh, I moved in with a girl and she fell pregnant and I was out drinking and she phoned me up and she said to me, look, Mike, uh, you need to come home. It was a Saturday. I was watching the football and I was drinking. I'd been doing a bit of cocaine. And she said, Michael, you, like, you need to come home. I'm losing the baby. And I said, OK. And I put the phone down. I turned around to my friend. I went fucking typical on a Saturday. She has to lose a baby on a Saturday. Oh. I said, I, I just can't believe this. Like, because I knew, I knew in my head I was out drinking. I was out using cocaine. And I was going to go and spend a long time up the hospital. So why I tell people that is because of the selfishness where, I, where it took me because I didn't really care. And the book talks about the tornado that tears through people's lives. Mm -hmm. You know, I spent in my teens, late in my teens and early 20s, well, I don't say early 20s, even, even up to when I stopped drinking, I, I used to go in my nan and granddad's house and steal a lot of money from them for drinking drugs. I used to just go in there and just steal money from them all the mm -hmm. time. Like, I started off with 20-pound coins, what I found in a drawer, and I took them, and there was no consequences. And before I knew it, my granddad was getting paid on the Friday and putting £350 in his wallet, and within an hour later, it was all gone. So I was taking it all. Do you think they knew? They knew. Yes, they knew. Because I recently went back. It took me a while, but I went back and had that conversation with my nan because my granddad's no longer with us. And I sat down with my nan and I said, look, you know, I went and made the amends to him and things. And at that current time, my sponsor quite 
pointed out to me, you know, that could be a, an amends that's going to cause more damage at this time. So, you know, go and apologize and make that amends. But you don't have to specifically tell them what it's about. So I didn't, but I did go back and, and cleared it up. And I sat down with my nan and said to her, look, you know, there's something that's been bugging me for a long time. I used to steal a lot of money from your house. And she said, yeah, we knew. She said, it's mm. gone and forgotten about Michael. She said, it's gone and forgotten. My nan's a, lo a lovely human being, you know. And she said, it's gone and forgotten about. And um, we knew. And it's a bit of a shame because I'd like to have sat down and apologized to my granddad, but he's not with us anymore. But, you know, one of the gifts, gifts of me was being sober when my granddad did pass away. He passed away and I was sober and I knew that he was proud of what I had achieved. You know, my drinking just got worse and worse. The consequences got worse. I, I moved away, you know, tried the geographic thing where we moved away. The real reason behind that was just to get my ex-girlfriend out of the way so I could drink more and, uh, you know, and spend more time out with my friends. And I was just doing a lot more drink driving. And I, we moved to some some country lanes. And it was crazy, really, because driving home from there was just, I, I don't know how I didn't crash and kill myself. You know, I, I really don't know how I didn't um, mm -hmm. crash and kill myself. But it, it just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And and the consequence was getting worse. And then I was suffering with my health. I was urinating blood and things and my kidneys and liver. And, and the that, that didn't even scare me off drinking, my friend. You know, I went to the doctors and they said to me, you know, if you don't calm down your drinking, there's talk of dialysis machine and things. And I was just like, nah, who gives a shit? I want to be dead by the time I'm 30 anyway. I don't really care. Man, you know, did that at least give you like a week of sobriety or like when you walked out the doctor's office, you're like, all right, man, I at least got to try this to giving it up alcohol. It gave me, it gave me three days when I was on some kind of antibiotics. And I remember, I remember it. I, I remember it well that I was really shaking like for a drink. I was really like dying for a drink. And, um, I, I remember them three days and I was like, I'll sod this, these antibiotics. And, and I just walked up to the pubs. They gave me probably about three days of sobriety. So the problem, the problem was it, stopping drinking was never the problem. It was easy to stop drinking, but it was staying stopped. That was the problem. Mm, yeah. And, and fear can get you like a week of sobriety, but it's not going to get you anything of the prolonged healthy sobriety that sounds like you found in the last 10 years. So. Yeah. So I, I went to recovery. Like there was a lot of stuff happening. I, was, I got into bed one night with my ex-girlfriend and she said, I want to read you something because all my family and all that was saying that that you've got a problem. You've got a real issue here with drinking. And I, I couldn't see it. Deep down, I knew there was something not quite right there, but I was just like, yeah, whatever. You know, I'm okay with it. And then one night I got into bed, my ex-girlfriend had this little blue book. And at the time, I had a friend that was in recovery. And she must have got the book from him. And she started reading me saying, she went, I want to read you saying. She was reading me saying. I, to this day, Paul, I, I don't know what it was she was um, reading me. I think it might have been the doctor's opinion or something, uh -huh. probably more than likely something from that. I can't remember. And I just looked at her and I said, what the, f what are you going on about? What is this crap you're going on about? I said, like, and bless her, all she was trying to do was help, you know, and yeah. um, I was I was particularly nasty. I, was, I wasn't violent where I hit her, but I used to have really bad rages and smash up the flat. I would spit in her face and, and, and I would treat her bad. You know, I, I never laid a hand. I've never, thank God, hit hit a woman, but I've been quite sort of, my, my, my behavior has been very, very scary at times, you know, and scared me at times. And she put up with a lot, you know, and as I said, we moved away. And that's really, I remember, I remember it well when a little trigger, when something clicked in me, we was staying in a caravan on our mum and dad's land because they had quite a lot of land. And we was drinking 
she went to bed and, and I stayed up and I, I just cleared out the cabinet. Like I was, she, she was an hairdresser and she got all these wines and champagnes and I just cleared them out and I woke up in the morning in blackout, bought these empty bottles of wine and she just looked at me and she said, fuck, what is going on for you? Like, what mm. on earth is going on for you? And um, I just said, I don't know. You know, I was hiding drink as well at the time. I was hiding it. Um, she was getting up and going to work and I was drinking early in the morning and, and blah, 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 blah. All, all that stuff that we do, you know. Yeah. And, I was just, I just, I was confused. I was confused because it wasn't to us when I tried to stop that way I realized it was a real problem, you know? And that's when I, that's when I was like, I'm going to stop drinking. And I would last like a few days and I call it the brat, that voice in the back of my head. It's not that bad. Come on. What, what is you it know? called? The brat? Yeah, I'll call it the brat. I, I named mine Gary. Yeah, I had to give it a name. So I could literally be like, Gary, shut the F up, man. I'm not yeah. listening to you right now. Yours is called the brat. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> keep going we call it the brat yeah so he, he, he would start speaking to me and we'd be having a, a dialogue I, I weren't really conscious at the time what was going on there and i'd have a dialogue with him and i'd say okay let's come on in let's 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 cut a deal here we'll have a drink then you know <laughs> so, cut a deal brat all right <laughs> yeah let's cut a deal brat but you know it, it was just in the end it was a very dark lonely place where it took me you know it took me to a place like i was surrounded by people and i had friends and family that cared about me but i just felt so isolated I was in debt. I was I was in trouble financially. I was just in trouble with my health. I was in trouble with with relationships and friendships and things. You know, like it was just spiraling out of control. And it wasn't until I stopped trying to to stop that that there was a, the real issue. You know, when I realised that there might be something a little bit more. So I had some friends that were in recovery, and I sort of I phoned them up and said, "Look, you know, I, I need some help here. I need a counsellor or something." Because I just I, like my my thing is I thought if if I just got two thousand pound in the bank, I'd be all right. And I thought my problem was gambling. I was like, if I just stop gambling, I'll be okay. <laughs> like, hmm. I'll get £2,000 in the bank and I'll stop drinking. Sure. And my friend said to me, come along to a meeting. I was like, oh, I don't know about this. You know, like, you know, you've got to speak. Because prior to that, sorry, I'll jump back a little bit. Paul. Prior to that, I went to a meeting. You know, I, I went to recovery because my family told me to. And, and I'm glad I remembered this, actually, because of, you know, my family told me to go to a meeting. Everyone around me was jeering me up to go to a meeting. And I went to a meeting reluctantly. I didn't want to go, but I went to keep everyone happy. And I can tell anyone that listens to this, if you're not going there for yourself, the chances of you making long-term sobriety are very slim, are very slim. And that's been my experience because... Michael, can you repeat that one more time? Okay. If you are not going to recovery for yourself, the chances of you staying sober long term or making it in recovery are very, very slim. Because when I like it comes back to like when I'm coaching people and, and, and everything in my life, it's like, why do you want this? Well, I need to, I've got to, I have to. And I say to them, you're not gonna make it if you're coming from a place that you need to, have to, got to. Because as soon as things start getting difficult, you'll run the opposite way. When you want it, when you really, really want this. You will succeed in achieving what it is that you want to achieve. But when you're coming from a place of, well, I've got to get sober or I'm going to die. Or, you know, I had someone say to me, I, I, I have to. They couldn't get their head around this concept that they, they've got to want. They're like, you know, they've got to want it. You've got, you've got to want it. I want to do this. If you use that word, I want to do that, then I know you're serious. If you say, well, I've got to because the wife or I've got to because of my kids. Here's the thing. What happens if the wife leads with the kids? And I've experienced this. One of the people that helped me to get in recovery, like he was staying sober for his girlfriend and they got married and within a month they split up and the first thing he went and done is drunk. 
because he wasn't doing it for himself. He wasn't mm-hmm. putting himself. He wasn't putting skin in the game. He wasn't going full out in the game because it was always for someone else. And I went to meetings for other people. I sat there. I listened. I looked at the steps on the wall. I looked at step four. Made a search in Phyllis moral inventory of ourselves. I was like, well, what's that all about? Admit to God to ourselves another human being and accept nature of our wrongs. I was like, well, I ain't doing that. <laughs> you know, made a yeah, made a list of persons we had harmed to become willing to make amends to them. You're are you kidding me? That looks like no fun. No thank yeah. you. Make direct amends to such people whenever because if you're coming from a place I've got to, I have to, I need to, you're not going to see the benefit in doing that, you know. And I go back, I was speaking to a lady about it. She was saying, well, I've got to do this for my kids. And I said, well, if you've got to do it for your kids, you probably would have already achieved it by now. If you, ha- if you had to do it for your kids, you probably would have achieved it by now. You've got to want to do it because it's got to come from you and a burning desire in yourself to do that. So, and the next night I went back down the pub. I said to my friend, I went to that AA place last night. He said, really, what for? And I went, I don't know, really. I said, everyone keeps going on at me about my drinking and things like that. And he said, how was it? I said, it don't work. <laughs> I've done everything. I just went to a meeting and sat there and kept quiet and told everyone I was coming back. But the real thing for me, Paul, was was the mental side of it. Like I thought I was going insane. Like I thought I was, you know, when I first went into recovery, I, I went to a meeting. I phoned my friends. They said, "Come along." I managed to go, and and I say this, and I'll repeat this one as well. In my experience, is I was about a week and a half sober, and my ego was reconstructing hmm. the ego and the brat was saying to me, it wasn't that bad. I'd come off the back of a suicide as well prior to that. Okay. I tried to kill myself. And I was up at 4 o'clock in the morning drinking. I tried to take my own life. My mum caught me. I was sitting with a load of pills. She caught me. She said, look, we're going to get do something about this. I said, okay. The next day I got up, got showered and went down to the pub. She said to me, what are you doing? What about last night? Like you broke down and crying. And I said, it's all right now. I've been asleep. So... That's the insanity around that. You know, that's insanity. I went, I went home drunk one night and I got a knife to cut my own wrists and ended up turning the knife on my mum and cutting my mum's hand open. Michael, I think it's the ism, part of alcoholism, which stands for me, stands for incredibly short memory. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's, it's that, it's going to be different this time. Like, it, it doesn't matter. It's going to be different this time. Like, that was just a one-off, that, that craziness and things. That's just yeah, a totally. Different this time, and um, again as well, I, I think a big part Paul, is is, is I, I hadn't conceded to myself that there's a thing that I talk about with people. It's like the pain pleasure when we're always seeking pleasure over pain. Now I was in a painful place with my drinking, but here was the thing: it was more pleasurable for me to carry on drinking and doing what I was doing than actually stop and get sober because I knew when I stopped to get sober, I'd have to work five days a week. I would have to sort out all my bills. I'd have to do this, I'd have to do that, I'd have to start taking responsibility for myself. So for an easy cop-out for me, I was like, well, it's much easier for me just to carry on killing myself with alcohol. Because I see no future for myself as well. I was like, I can't read, I can't write, I'm dyslexic. There's no future for me. There's nothing here for me, you know. So it's just easier for me just to sedate my life of alcohol and drugs the best I can, as much as I can, until the day that, that I pass away. Man. Mm. God. So what switched? What happened? You know, 10 years ago, what happened? It was December. It was December 28th. And I had tickets. I had tickets for a New Year's party. And it was December 28th. And I, I woke up on my mum's floor and I had items of clothing missing. And I just, I was just woke up and I was just on my knees. And I just looked up at the sky. 
and I didn't believe in God or spirituality or anything like that. I say that. It's quite, quite ironic because when I used to do the lottery, I used to sit there and go, God, if you let me win the lottery, I'm going to be a really good boy. I'm not going to do anything. And when I didn't win the lottery, I'd go, see, there ain't a God. <laughs> so I must have had some idea there was some, something out there. But my ego pride and my manism, whatever they want to call it, you know, uh, my alpha male wouldn't allow that to be seen by the outside world. But I just got my hands and knees and said, there's something out there. Please help me because I'm lost and I don't want to carry on like this. I don't actually want to die. I used to say to people that by the age of 30, I want to be dead. And I didn't really. That was just a bit of a facade sort of thing. I didn't want to die. And there was just this, you know, people say a voice or whatever. It certainly weren't the brat talking to me. And there was just this thing said, phone your friends, phone your friends. So I phoned my friends. I spoke to them. They said about the meeting. I was like, oh, I don't know. You know, I've been before. I don't like it. And, and then I was like, right, let's just go. So they picked me up and I was traveling to a meeting. And like I said, the ego was reconstructing quick. You know, I was in the back of the truck with two people. They were talking to me about recovery. They're saying, you know, you've been sick for a long time. You know, and you've not been well for a long time, blah, blah, blah. And I was sitting there thinking, what are they going on about? And then the brat started saying to me, what's going to happen? We're going to go in this place and people are going to look at you. They're going to think you're a bum. It's going to be really embarrassing. So I started trying to make an excuse up why we weren't going to go into the meeting. I was like, I've got stomachache, guys. I, I think I'm just going to hang out here. And they knew what I was up to. And they just said to me, like, come on, we're going. We're going in. Yeah. So they dragged me into the meeting. And I, I, was, I found it quite weird at first because I had a lot of men coming up to me asking for my phone number. And I thought, where have, these, where have my friends took me here? Is this, is this legit? <laughs> I've got a lot of men asking for my phone number here. And, uh, yeah, you guys got me good. Good joke. Yeah, got, All right. You got me good, guys. And my, I think someone was talking, sharing, and my ego deflated just enough to hear a message. Just enough. Just enough to hear a message. My pride and ego just deflated enough to hear a message. And I sat there and I see, like, if I relapse tomorrow, Paul, there's one thing I'll always remember, that I've sat in a room with people that are sober, happy, smiling, and I'll never forget that. And I think I've never relapsed. Um, my friends, unfortunately, you know, some of my friends have and some friends have died and things. But, you know, I always say to them, you always remember this. You've sat in a room with people that are sober. They're happy. They've got their shit together. My ego deflated just enough for me to hear a message. And I sat there and I was like, I want this. I want, I want this. I, I, I was the most negative person you'll ever come across. Self-loathing, depressed all the time. I suffered with depression, anxiety, nothing. My cup was always half empty, never half full. And that was it. And then I went to another meeting. There was a guy there that was, how could I, what would be the best way to describe this guy? <laughs> he was, he was, uh, he was like, whether you love him or whether you love him or hate him, I kind of like him. Yeah. Everyone I speak to don't like him. Donald Trump. He okay. was, <laughs> he was a bit like, Donald Trump just says it as it was, sure. says it as it was. And he was, he was quite strict with, with the way his recovery. And uh, I needed that because I, I, wasn't, I wasn't that way. You know, I, I never had made a commitment in my life. I never done anything in my life. And I asked this guy to, to sponsor me. And then we started on a journey through the 12 steps. I, I don't even know what I was doing at first. The first two years, I don't even know what I was doing going through the steps. You know, I, I, I got to step seven or no, I got to step four. And I was like, I think we need to go back and redo it. And <laughs> And he was like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that one before. Just get on with the writing, you know. Um, <laughs> the hard step four. Gosh, yeah. Man, yeah. I just finished all that. I just finished my fifth one. And that, 
that was a bitch. Let's put it that way. It was it was never because I used to I used to piss and moan and tell everyone my inventory every night down the pub. So it was not that I was embarrassed about sharing my dark darkest deepest secrets and things like that. It was just the writing side of it. Like I had two weeks to do it, and I left it the night before I was meeting my sponsor. So <laughs> my, my sponsor, I went. You yeah, scallywag. Yeah, I've not, I've not done it. it it's going to take me a little bit longer than an hour to do. And he went, right, I think it ended up taking me like two months to do in the end. Because when I came into recovery, I couldn't read or write. I, I, I had to have my sponsor read the book when I met him once a week. How we went through the steps is we met once a week and went through, through them that way. And he, he had to read the book to me and then I had CDs. So in the evenings when I was at home, I, I'd have the CDs on reading the book. Mm-hmm. And it was actually the AA... It was actually the Alcoholics Anonymous, Anonymous book that really taught me to read, really, which is quite ironic because it's it's not an easy read. It's all old English writing and things like that, you know. So, so yeah, I learned to read from that. So that was one of the big things as well for me was learning to read. Gosh, very fundamental book in your life for that reason. Taught you to read and write yeah. and to save your life, basically. That's hmm. incredible. So, Michael, talk to me about what your recovery portfolio looks like today. And I say portfolio. Because what do you do? Walk me through an average day of the life of Michael, and how do you stay sober? Okay, so here's the thing. Like I said, you know, if if I was to relapse tomorrow, um, I said earlier, if I was to relapse tomorrow, I'd always remember that there's a room full of people. I get, you know, and I always say to people, you know, it is one day at a time. It is one day at a time. But I told myself for so long, no matter what, I will never, ever, ever drink or use drugs ever again in my life. Because I heard so many people that used to say, well, I might use drinking drugs. You never know. I may relapse. And lo and behold, then people relapsed. So when I started learning a lot more about psychology and, and the human mind of things, I thought, well, if I'm going to think anything, you know, I'm quite a big thinker in, in a way and bold in, the, in my dreams and goals that I want to achieve. I was just like, well, why not tell myself a different story? Why not sort of, instead of just clinging on, say to myself, look, you know, I never drink. I never drink and use drugs ever again. You know, and that worked for me. That has worked for me. Another thing as well is I, I looked at what 95 percent of people were doing in recovery, and I'd done the complete opposite to them. So if my sponsor said at the beginning, like go to three or four meetings a week, I, I went to five or six. Okay. I was, looking, I was looking what other people were doing, and I was. I didn't know it at the time, but it wasn't until I got a little bit further in. I was like, it seems everything I do in my life. If if I see someone doing it. I would look at doing it maybe a little bit different because statistics are most people don't get sober and stay sober, I you know, know. And, and that's the sad facts. Like, you know, it doesn't matter how much you try and polish it up. You know, once you start getting past five, five years, the, the, the chips and the things really start dropping off. Like I'm 37 years old and I'll sit in a room and class this is an old time. <laughs> I was saying it to a friend the other day. He said to me, I'm six years next month. He went, you're 10, didn't you? I went, yeah. So class was an old time now, I guess, right? <laughs> it was laughing. But that's the sad fact that not many people do. So uh, so when you say like my portfolio is like uh, what I do on a day-to-day basis, right, Paul, is that what you want yeah, to Yeah, I mean, what do you do yeah. to, to, to stay sober? How? What are you going to do to get 10 years? So it's funny now because, and I heard it a lot in recovery, I do more today than I ever done. I do more today with my personal growth than, than I ever done when I was early in recovery. Like it was taking inventory and doing meditation. Now, currently, this morning, my alarm, I was up out of bed at five. I was downstairs. I was 10 minutes into meditation, done 10 minutes meditation. Then I had a little workout. I alternate between yoga and, and training. So I, this morning was a workout with some kettlebells. 
then I sat down with my journal, uh, writ out my journal and, and what I want to achieve today. I sat there and looked at what my dreams and goals are for the next three years. I was sitting there just looking at them and what, what I'm going to achieve over the next three years of my life. And then I sat down and what else did I do? I, I had a coffee. <laughs> I had a coffee and I've done some reading. I, I'm reading every day I read. Uh, have, you ever, have you heard of The Seven Spiritual Laws by Deepak Chopra? No, I have not. No. Okay, so it's quite a short book. I just read a chapter a day. So it's Seven Spiritual Laws. So I just read a chapter a day. And then once I get to the seventh one, I'll just go back to the first one again and keep reading it. You know, rep- repetition's a king. You know, that's that's how you achieve what you want to achieve. And it's funny, in the group, Paul, I see, I see a lot of people saying that, you know, about making a commitment to, to having routines in their life. And I'm, I'm not a massive a routine person, but I'm very routined in my mornings. You know, I'll get up anything between four and five o'clock. I was up watching football last night till about 11. So that's why I was up at five. But <laughs> most mornings I'm up, at, I'm up at four o'clock in the morning to get all this quiet timing and get myself straight for the day to go out and, and tackle the day. And then around about half seven, anything from half six to half seven, my son wakes up, and my wife wakes up and then I get to spend time with them. You know, I get sure. to connect and bond with them. So you know, it's very much grounded in, in the principles still of recovery, but it has evolved a lot for me in the sense that my spiritual practice, you know, the meditation, being being consistent with that. I'm more consistent today with anything that I've ever done in my life than I was at the beginning, you know, more so. Definitely. Michael, I love it. And we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 seconds, are you ready? Let's go. Number one, Michael, what was your worst memory from drinking? I'd probably say the, the really bad hangovers, the really bad hangovers. Another one's like you, you, you would drink the next morning to overcome it, but it would still be lingering, you know, until, until later on in the day. That, that were the worst. I suffered quite bad with hangovers. Ugh, those are the mm. worst. Next question. What's your favorite resource in recovery? This can be a 12-step program. This can be a book. What's keeping you sober? I think that there's a really good, I see a lot of people, uh, this would probably be beneficial to everyone, like people speak about meditation. There's a, an app called Calm. I think mm. it's Calm. I'll put it in the group or whatever if anyone's got a question. I'll, I'll, my phone's not with me, but that, that app's really good for meditation. It's guided meditation. What it does is it keeps a log of how many consistent days you've done meditation, how long you've done in meditation. So if you miss a few days, it sort of breaks your sort of winning streak as, as to say so it's being consistent with it i, I think that's that's really good yeah that's really good. put it put it in the group i'd like to know yeah. about it next question michael in regards to sobriety what's the best advice you've ever received okay the best advice i ever received was this is about you it's not about anyone else it's about you you know when i've done my inventory i thought my sponsor was going to sit down with me and say how, how poor old me and how the world had wronged me and the most powerfulest thing that's ever come from the steps and even what I've taken into my coaching there and helping people is everything's about you. It doesn't matter about anyone else. It doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. It doesn't matter what anyone else is saying. It's how you're reacting to it. What's going on for you? Because ultimately, you want to change anything. The only person you can ever change is yourself. Stop. Don't, don't waste your time trying to change other people because they won't change. And last question, Michael. What parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober? Okay, so there's a saying that goes around, there's a lot of myths in AI, um, and I like to debulk a lot of them. Uh, one of the best ones, like we spoke about in the recovery, recovery film, was just eat loads of sugar. You know, uh, I love to debulk that. But you hear a lot of the times people say, keep coming back. And I always say to people, don't keep coming back. Stay. Just stay. Hmm. You know, don't leave before the miracle happens. 
Search within yourself, why are you doing this? It comes down to your big why. Why are you getting sober? If it's for you and you alone, find your why, stick around, don't leave before the miracle happens, and just drench yourself in this stuff. Because if I can do it, anyone can do it. And you hear that a lot, but I promise you, if I can do it, someone that's bumbling, mumbling, stumbling wreck that couldn't read or write, and I'm coming up to 10 years sobriety, God, I love it. And last, let's finalize with give us your own personalized, you might be an alcoholic if, Michael. Okay, you might, you might be an alcoholic if you kiss another man. <laughs> well, oh. I was out one night drunk and it was two women. And I said, me and this guy was standing there. I said, go on, go on, you two kiss each other. And they went, I'll tell you what, if you two kiss each other, we'll kiss each other. So me and this guy were drunk. We kissed each other, tongued each other. And then we turned around to these two girls and they looked at us and they went, that is fucking disgusting. I just walked away. <laughs> oh, they peaced out. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Looking at us in this club with anger. So I, I, <laughs> did, did you look at the guy you just made out with and be like, we will never speak of this again? Uh, he was a lousy kisser, man. He was a lousy kisser. He, oh, was, he, yeah. he was going for it, though. Like he, he really wanted these two girls to kiss. I was sort of trying to roll back a little bit. I wasn't actually going full on tongues, but yeah, he, went, he, went, he went there. So, you know, so you, you know, could be a possibility if that That's happens. incredible. <laughs> And Michael, how do we find out more about you, this breakthrough coaching? Are you on Facebook? Are you on Twitter? Yeah, you, you, you'll find me. Like My website is uh, www.michaelhilton.com. My name's spelt different, though. It's M-I-C-H-E-A-L-H-I-L-T-O-N. Uh, my mum's spelled it different. You know, you, If you type in Michael Hilton Breakthrough Coaching, you'll find my Facebook page. Or just come and connect with me. You know, Just type in Michael Hilton, again, spelled M-I-C-H-E-A-L. And just add me as a friend on Facebook if you want to connect or anything. Uh, Twitter as well. I'm on Twitter. So it's not too hard to find me. I think if you just go in Google and type my name in, there'd be loads of videos come up and things like that. Love it, Michael. Thank you so much for helping me stay sober. I got to join that 10-year club with you. I'm going to be there mm-hmm. soon. And I love the fact you said, you know, try it out. Maybe I will never drink again. And say that to yourself. It's a daily affirmation. So thank you so much, Michael, for joining us You're today. Welcome. You might be an alcoholic if you keep a notepad by your phone so when you're drunk dialing, you can take notes of the conversations, but the next day, you can't read the conversations because you're too drunk to write legibly. This one's also from Claire. You might be an alcoholic if you're now sober, but you want to wear a sign on your shirt that says, yeah, I'm chewing gum merely to blow bubbles, not because I'm trying to cover up the vodka smell. Love it, Claire. This one's from Caleb. You might be an alcoholic if you strictly buy canned beer so you can hide it in your bag without anybody hearing a glass clink. Yep, check, been there before, Caleb. You're an alcoholic, and so am I. (laughs) Someone's from Simone. You might be an alcoholic if you log into MyFitnessPal.com as soon as you wake up to pre-enter the amount of calories from the eight double whiskeys that you will be consuming later. This one's from Brian in Kansas City, Missouri. You might be an alcoholic if it's your turn to be the DD. So before the baseball game, you pound beers at the tailgate before the game, hoping it carries you through at least to the 7th, 8th, or ninth inning. But halfway through, the game gets rained out in the 5th inning, and you're too drunk to drive everybody home. Hey, here you guys had a good season out there, Brian. Email your personalized You Might Be an Alcoholic if lines to info at recoveryelevator.com. You can also go to recoveryelevator.com, click on podcast, and find each of these listed in the show notes. Recovery Elevator, I've said big things are happening on February 27th in Seattle, Washington. This is going to be our very first meetup where I'm going to put some faces to some names, and we'd love to have you. If you've got some frequent flyer miles you want to burn, let's do it. 
let's hang out with some other alcoholics in Seattle, Washington. It's going to be downtown on February 27th. Times, address, TBD, to be determined, I think that means. You are going to add contacts to your recovery portfolio that will start to yield dividends that very moment moving forward. Check out recoveryelevator.com for ways to get connected with us to join the Recovery Elevator Facebook accountability group. So Recovery Elevator, you took the elevator down, you gotta take the stairs back up. You can do this.